Bienvenidos. That's California for welcome to the March 2nd edition of National Review's Radio Free California podcast. I'm Will Swain, president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. You can find my friend and co-host David Bonson right here. He's an economist, an author, the host of the Capital Record podcast, and founder of the eponymous investment firm, the Bonson Group. Hello, David. Hello, Will. Greetings from New York City. How are you? I'm good, man. I just got back from a trip to Mississippi. I uh, had a wonderful interaction with a, a flight attendant. You know how they walk down the aisles collecting garbage and they're, you know, just shouting out like basically garbage, garbage. And I said, hey, yeah, and it- they're not and they're not wearing masks anymore. They're trying to murder people. <laughs> we should talk. There's so much. The, the whole conversation about COVID has changed. But I asked this one. I said, is it true? That when you're walking down the aisle and saying garbage, garbage, gar- that you're talking to us. And she said, oh, no, when we are talking to you, we say trash. <laughs> well, that's she, adorable. She was, she was fun. It was funny. I, I took it as a joke. She was. I love that. I love it. Um, so I so you were not in Southern California yesterday. I late at night only. Yeah. I got a text from my kids at their high school in Newport Beach of snow coming down. Yes. And I'm in New York City where there has been no snow. <laughs> Don't you think that's interesting? I do. Um, a of two cities. New York has had like one and a half days of snow all winter. And California, Newport Beach, no less, gets snowfall in March. What is going on? <laughs> Yeah, the snow down here, for those who know Southern California, we have that range of mountains in the eastern part of the county, Orange County, that is. Um, it's not a surprise when the San Gabriels and, you know, et cetera, the San Bernardino Mountains, when those have snow. I mean, you're talking about some pretty high high mountains out there. But San, the, the Santa Ana Mountains peak out at about 5,200 feet, and the snow level was down to a about 900 in the foothills. It's just, and it's beautiful. The, you know, it's just super clear and the mountains look majestic and uh, gosh, I I love it when it's like this. But of course, simultaneously, the headlines are coming out that drought restrictions will be enforced. You and I've talked about this, that it's just, it's just murder. Now, you know, whenever it can rain and they are always warning us, don't worry, the drought restrictions are still in place. Uh, This is a state that is so dysfunctional, it can't catch water with a cup. Do you do you have anything in our agenda today about the um, Gavin Newsom poll in Queenapack, or can, should I do that now? You should do it now. Yeah, I was on um, set with Stuart Varney this morning on Fox Business for an hour. I, I kind of sat on st- sat with him for the opening hour of the show. I do it um, once or twice a month, and I, I've probably done it now at least ten times with them. And um, they had a story in the thing about Gavin Newsom, a new poll that had come out. They said 70% of Californians don't want him to run for president and 54% of Democrats didn't want him to. And then they turn to me and say, David, you spend um, a, the lion's share of your time now in California and you've been born and raised there. What do you think about this poll? And I said, well, first of all, I don't believe that it's true that most Democrats would not like to see him as president. Um But I do think that the poll is one of those really interesting things, and you see this on the Republican side sometimes too, where people can say something about a candidate that reflects what they feel about a certain issue or condition, but then has nothing to do with how they would vote. So it's like, if you mean, am I mad about homelessness? The answer is yes. 
if you mean, am I going to vote for someone other than Gavin Newsom? The answer is no. <laughs> yeah, right. You know what I mean? And, yes. and it was sort of like Karen Bass winning the LA thing against Caruso. Like 70% of LA people say the number one issue is homelessness. And then they, and then they elect, you know, Karen Bass to, to keep up status quo of homelessness. So voters usually get what they deserve. And I know people on the right don't like it when I say that, but it's true. They do. Well, and this is what's fascinating. I was in Mississippi uh, to meet with colleagues who do what I do at California Policy Center. They do this in other states. And we just kind of compare, you know, best practices. And uh, except for my colleague in New York, um, you know, the best practices include, uh, you know, being able to run legislation in at least a divided state legislature and sometimes a red legislature. And I'll say that, you know, in in the red states, their problem is that Republican really is sometimes in name only and conservative values, principles, constitutionalism just doesn't even really enter into the argument. It's really people who all nominally are Republican and therefore nominally conservative um, running in a kind of a left-right, bi- you know, a, a bipolar sort of uh, competitive legislature. So they have their own problems there, keeping Republicans honest. Um, but out here, you're you're right that it just seems that with Gavin Newsom, we see that people will say California is headed in the wrong direction on a range of issues. Um, but then, you know, Gavin Newsom will win in a recall very easily. So um, it's a tough state. And, and it is because voters, you are, we're dealing with trying to rent space in people's heads across the largest, you know, population in the, in the, in the country. Uh, and, and I think, too, um, just people coming to terms with the reality of the, the population centers that are the city of Los Angeles and the um, city of San Francisco and surrounding areas. And, and then you'll hear like the, my co-host on Fox, a gal named Warren Simonetti, who I like a lot, very smart, been on air with her a million times. And, and she said, well, yeah, but you know, everyone's going to leave California. I said, Warren, here's the thing. If there's 50 million people and 400,000 leave, you haven't made a dent in the population, even though you've lost tax base, even though you've lost good quality people. And as you and I have talked about many times, you're almost for sure losing mostly Republican voters or, or moderate voters. The people leaving are generally not the lefty people, the guys that get mad enough about crime and homelessness and education and other issues that go to a place like Nevada, Wyoming, uh, Texas, Nashville, Franklin, uh, you know, Scottsdale, et cetera. I just think they're generally red or purple voters anyways. So it isn't like people leaving is enabling a diminishment of the Democratic stronghold in California. There, There is no way this entire podcast for the, what is it now? Seven years we've done it, six years we've done it. And all the efforts at California Policy Center for all the years you've been there and will be there all the money spent, all of the time and treasure and passion that guys like you and I have for reforming California, all of it will be a waste if we don't win the hearts and minds of people. There is no election coming that is going to change the state. You've got to change the hearts and minds of people. I believe that more now than I ever have. 
I agree completely. And, you know, that way, for that reason, when I talk to people who say, well, what we really need is just better policy. The policy is out there. You and I talk about this week in and week out. So I don't think the policy is a question. It's the. Do you still hear that? That people say we need better policy? I'm sorry, could you say that again? You still hear people say that? Oh, yeah, we just need better oh, yeah. policy. Yeah, yeah, I hear something even dumber. And Tell I hear me. it every day. We need better marketing. <laughs> That's all we're missing is we just don't know how to brand ourselves. Really, everybody loves what we're selling, but we just don't sell it clever enough. We don't know how to get in with the young kids, with the cool kids. You know, the Democrats, they run better commercials. We need better marketing. And I just think to myself, if you think that, we have no prayer. So tell me, if it's... If it's not policy, and if it's because we already know what the policies are that would be effective, and they tend to be consistent with our principle that real human flourishing requires a liberal, well-ordered democracy, and we don't have, and when I say liberal, of course, I mean classical liberalism. Um, But if it's not liberal, you mean what the word liberal means? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So if it's not the policy, because, you know, the policy is widely available. We know how to get, you know, we know how to produce abundant water. We know how to produce abundant energy. We know how to produce abundant jobs and quality schools. We know how to do this. That's not the question. And if it's not the messaging around those policies, then what do you think it is? We have to win the argument. You have to persuade. You have to you have to change the hearts and minds of people. But so, it, but that is that not messaging? Is that not well? That marketing? presupposes that the um, message that you and I believe is right is being um, that you're convincing others it's right. And so the pro the, in other words, there are gazillions of examples that people have rejected truth. People have rejected facts. People have rejected what would be more effective or, or in this case, take away pragmatics. Like let's not be arrogant. Let's just go to philosophy. Our policy ideas are not better. They're not better. If you presuppose the supremacy of central planning, or if you suppose the supremacy of radical environmentalism or the moral superiority of um, social justice and wokeism and BLM and ESG and DIE. It's DEI, but I say DIE. See what I did there? Mm-hmm. I, I, I like that. That's what I say. Yes, I understand. So, so the idea that all it is is um, we have a pot of gold and we just got to get people to our pot of gold and we're not pushing them the right way through the maze to get them to our pot of gold. It isn't true. They um, have their own presuppositions. They have their own views of the world and what their views of the world are, are often evil, covetous, resentful, ignorant. I mean, that's more benign, rather be ignorant than evil. But my point is this idea that the voters are really with us. If we could just, you know, show them what we got, they're not, mm-hmm. they're not with us. That's so how do we, so how, what, what's going to happen if it's not policy and it's not just messaging to people, but what converted you? You were you were a Marxist, and you came around to see that the Marxian view was you you became persuaded of a different ideology, 
and what makes people genuinely like, what do I think is going to change um, those right wing oriented voters th that are mad right now that are going to, that want to keep voting for people like Carrie Lake and Donald Trump. They're going to lose enough that they'll say, okay, fine. I give up. So you can either get people frustrated enough with their circumstances. So that's the bottoming out theory. People in California, like in New York, what makes New Yorkers all of a sudden vote for Giuliani and Bloomberg and Pataki? It was crime, right? They just can't mm -hmm. take it anymore. So yeah, maybe things turn into such a hellhole <clears throat> that the voters change. But is that what we're rooting for? We want things to get so bad and people's quality of life suffers so much that then we might win an election. And again, uh, the Bible tells me that um, we underestimate the obstinance of sinful humans to our own peril. I think people can double down on dumb voting for a long time. And so there's a vicious cycle at play. It's not just that things get worse, but then they keep wanting worse and worse things to remedy what is going wrong. And that's where the unions come in is that they double down on dumb and they double down on evil. So you're, I know what you're asking me. You're asking me, what is the solution? And what I'm suggesting is the solution is a long-term transformation of winning the argument, winning the debate, convincing people of the superiority of the ideas and the philosophy. And then other people say, oh, God, will you shut up with these highfalutin ideas? Ideas don't matter. We, we have to run a better commercial. We need a better TikTok or something. And I just think... You're not with me, bro. You're not with me. You're not one of us. Yeah, Our, I, I, the American experiment is an idea. Yeah, I had this conversation. It's fascinating that this is the theme that's on your mind because I had a donor meeting this morning in which I was told precisely that, that you know we're, we, we've simply got everything in reverse. We don't need to focus on ideas or policy or debate. We need to work. We need to reverse engineer everything and think about our messaging. And it's what message is going to galvanize, you know, in this man's case, Latinos and young people. Interesting that you, you chose this. And you'll know who this donor is. We'll talk about it offline. I already know. But, I already know. So, um, you know, I, I, I understand. And, and I was accused in this. He did accuse me in this conversation of he said, well, you're flying at 40,000 feet and, you know, you're, you're talking down to people and you don't understand their language. Um, yeah, but I, I, I that's I, what is needed. That's what is needed is to is for all of us to dumb ourselves down. That's the need of the day, huh? Dear and God. I also think, you know, I also think that worst comes to worst, and what we're, I should say, worse comes to worst, and we're talking about, you know, kind of really the implosion of California at some point. Okay, so you know what what I'll tell you is that CPC is involved in, and that is you know we're rebuilding a new world in the shell of this old one. This this thing is decrepit; it's collapsing, and when it collapses, and I do think that you know, barring a change in the hearts and minds of Californians, uh, they'll be slapped by reality and they'll be looking for an answer. And I would like to think that by that time, we will have done a terrific job of educating people, you know, like parents of school-age kids or local elected officials. Uh, we spend a lot of our time at CPC working with local elected officials so they really understand 
first principles in government, like what is government for and what is it not for? And what are what are the siren songs, the siren call of having the powers of government available to you and then using it for bad purposes just because you think it'll get you reelected? Um, so, you know, who do you want ready to take the wheel if there is a collapse here in California, who do you want people turning to? Well, I hope that people will turn to people like you and I and others like us here in California who have stayed true to principle throughout and who have been calm and ready to go to work when the public is ready for that kind of work. But, you know, I want to say, I mean, obviously, well, I say it to you all the time. I, I hope, you know, I'll always be an encouragement to your efforts because I don't want you to change a bit. I, I don't want you to do anything different. This notion that what you need to do is stop talking at a certain level. It, what, it, what it is, is very arrogant. And it would be very arrogant if you and I said, all people need to hear uh, the message and the way that we talk and the context we come from. You're not saying that either. I'm not saying that either. I accept the fact that there are young people that have a certain vocabulary and influences and and ways that are they're reached out to. And then there's older people. There's people of a certain intellectual background and people of a different one. But the, the thing that drives me nuts is that I never presuppose that everyone else is in the same sort of socioeconomic or, or, or a cerebral orbit that I've been raised in or that I care about. But why does that group and the person you're talking about, why do they assume that every other person in the world is an idiot? <laughs> that every single person needs two syllable words to understand. I'm, it's so condescending and it's untrue. Yes. There is a significant amount of California voters that are not going to respond to a really cool TikTok video. A whole lot of them that need ideas. There's others that are issue oriented. There's others, you know, that had never got a certain education. There's others that got an education and they got the wrong one. And so we, they need, they, there is a process of having to sort of uh, persuade people with love and winsomeness and argument and conviction and passion. So I, I don't agree with this whole thing about all we need is better marketing and messaging is an excuse to not have to win the argument. It's an excuse to be lazy. And it's a, it's a very latent arrogance that says, I'm from the street. And I just want to remind people of one of my favorite stand-up comedy moments of the last 10 years. I'm a big fan of stand-up comedy. And after New York reopened post-COVID, I took my son to see Ronnie Chang here at the Beacon Theater in Upper West Side. And, and Ronnie Chang was, is an a Asian comedian who used to be on, on, John, on Comedy Central. And he's a really funny guy. He's had a couple Netflix specials. He's very liberal, you know, like, like most comedians, not all, but like a lot. And he was talking about people saying, I'm street smart. I'm not book smart, but I'm street smart. And he said, what rule is it that says just because you're not book smart, it makes you street smart? How do I know you're not dumb as with books and dumb as on the street? And I just want to say that I agree with him in a very non-comedic way. <laughs> uh, let's take a moment to acknowledge, we, we get lots of reader, uh, listener rather interaction, and I, you know, we only have 
time for just a few of these today. I hope that's okay, and I apologize that we were not able to get to everybody. But I want to start with um, a professor who's a, a listener, Martine Hoker Martinez. Um, who says, uh, he's really writing to me, and he says, you know, although your frustration about the ability to warehouse water in California is warranted, I worry that in your brevity, you flirt with overstating how little has been done. I assume you are obliquely referring to the site's reservoir, among other ongoing projects associated with 2014's Prop 1. If you do want to support those government projects moving forward, please name them so your listeners can reach out to their state representatives to advocate for them. So, Martine, um, and to others who wish I were more specific all the time, the challenge here is that I would then be required to do every time we talk about water and the failure of the state to carry out plans to build more water infrastructure, I'd be required to explain all that. And it takes, you know, a good 10 or 15 minutes at least. So I always try to, to include a, you know, something in the, in the show notes. Um, and I actually, uh, this time in that particular instance that Martine is referring to, I actually did include an article from, uh, our own Edward Ring, one of the founders of California Policy Center. And, uh, and so I just sent Martine's letter to his email to Ed, and I asked him for his response. And he wrote, the obstructionist state legislature and their litigious environmentalist accomplices is usually good for a paragraph at least in almost everything I write about water. Um, he then sent me an article uh, that describes, as he said, the state of the site's reservoir, which has been in the planning stages for 30 years and is still nowhere close to breaking ground. Voters approved funding for this nine years ago. The latest assault is, well, there just isn't enough water. It's a laugh. So, um, again, you know, I'll, I'll always try to cite my sources or, or you know, cite yours in, in that instance. Um when we talk about these things, because I do, I get that they're shorthand in this conversation, and I don't want us to be obfuscatory and not, you know, reveal our sources and not talk in great detail about these things or use shorthand as we sometimes do. I get the jargon can be a real obstacle to understanding. So, um, Martine, I hope you understand, and you you have my phone number actually, Martine. So you can uh, give me a ring, and uh, we can talk about this further. And then I got an email from somebody who asks that we identify him as an associate in the industry, the natural gas industry, uh, who wanted to talk about uh, our conversation, yours and mine, about why California's natural gas prices are so high. And David, he says, Will, you're right that it is retail prices that are high and also correct that it's a supply problem, not a shortage problem. Let's call it a delivery problem. The problem is that California has to import 94% of all of its natural gas from nearby states, none of which have much gas of their own. And so they import that gas from even further away and typically from very cold places. That adds to the cost of delivery, especially when the rest of the continent is cold. Gavin Newsom doesn't seem to understand this element of supply and demand. Um, any thoughts on that, David? Well, I mean, Gavin Newsom doesn't understand a lot of things, and supply and demand is one of them. But the environmentalists, unfortunately, oftentimes don't understand supply and demand and oftentimes don't care about supply and demand. Um, and so in terms of the delivery issue they highlight and, and whatnot, I think they're right. And I think that um, the, uh, the facts that the governor is oblivious to it um, are, you know, we have to get to a point where we're not trying to educate Gavin Newsom on what to do. We're trying to educate the voters on how what Gavin Newsom is doing is harming them. And uh, unfortunately, 
there has been a real challenge for us on this environmental side, and we now have a little momentum. I think I think this is a good time for us to really come out strong as to how uh, the the radical environmental left is hurting Californians. Yeah, and specifically, David, you and I talk about this all the time. Like to me, if you're a conservative, one of the byproducts of conservative principles with regard to, say, free markets is that they particularly help the poor because an abundant energy supply, an abundant water supply, uh, a real choice in education, real markets in education, in other words, would primarily help the poor. When our natural gas bills spike here in, in California, people who are in the upper middle class and wealthy, they can afford that spike. It's They may not like it. In fact, they probably don't, but they can afford it. But you know who can't really afford that price hike and then starts having to make tough, tough choices between food and rent and gas bills and that sort of thing? It's the poor. So what's the governor's response? Well, it's not to admit that his policies are flawed. It's to tax people somewhere else along the supply chain and then offer a measly credit so that we're all kind of waiting for the government handout. But, you know, your politics and mine, one of the things that you've done so generously for me is introducing me to the Acton Institute where a lot of this conversation is really crystal clear. We're here to serve God's people and especially those who are really struggling in life. And the way we serve them best is, ironically, the left doesn't get this, of course, but ironically, it's by liberating markets. Free markets really are an answer to um, poverty elimination, or at least reduction. Um, Next letter is from a guy uh, who wants to describe himself as billionaire chimp somewhere in the San Fernando Valley. He says, I think you guys poo-poo how popular Katie Porter is nationally. You and I were saying there's a lot of great candidates and maybe uh, nationally Katie Porter is just not that big a figure. She is, of course, a congressman from our neighborhood, David, yours and mine down here in Orange County. But she's running for the Senate just to reprise. Um, the, the writer, billionaire chimp, goes on to say the Warren left, that is white wannabe socialist college educated and the Bernie true believer types, they love Katie Porter and her whiteboard and her owning corporations on social media. She is not unknown nationally to the 20, 30, to 20 to 30 something types. Money in her congressional race poured in when she was in trouble. The interesting fight won't be with Ro Khanna or Adam Schiff. It will be either from the black or Hispanic caucus in California. Schiff will still have the older Dems in California, but true believers will want Katie and whatever minority representative gets in play, gets in, will play that race card hard against Katie Porter. Uh, So it's a political um, calculus that this person's offering us, right? Yeah, just saying. I don't know. I don't know that I would disagree with anything. I mean, maybe I, I don't have a strong opinion about Katie's national profile. I, I mean, look, she is a Yale undergrad and Harvard law person, um, but I don't think she's, uh, I think a lot of that money, um, there, there's a, a different story behind where a lot of that money came from. I don't think that she is a darling around the whole country, but she can raise money. And if you're going to be an unknown liberal in California who needs to raise a lot of money, you should be an Ivy League uh, rich white woman uh, or elite white woman. That, that's the best way to raise money. So they're right. I, I, what do you say? Billionaire chimp? What is this? Uh, his name is billionaire chimp. Yeah. Bill, yeah. So I don't disagree with that. I think that's, that sounds about right. I, I, I would just simply say that California's uh, left-wing demographic does have an odd coalition because it does like the entire democratic party depend on, 
on elite cosmopolitan rich white women that play the woke card. Okay, that's a big part of the coalition, and that's Katie Porter. But yeah. it also does depend on black and brown voters. And I think Ro Khanna is a really compelling figure. Uh, but why would anyone care what a movement conservative, you know, white male Newport Beach guy thinks for the Democratic Party? So I'm the last <laughs> guy they should be getting advice from. I, uh, I'm probably talking my own book because I'd rather see Ro Khanna be the senator than Elizabeth Warren. So maybe I'm wrong. Well, you'll remember that this conversation included Katie Porter's suggestion. This was back when Dianne Feinstein had not yet announced that she would be retiring. And so there was this idea that she might retire before her term is up, allowing Gavin Newsom to appoint a replacement. And Katie Porter came out and said, oh, well, then if that's the case, if Feinstein is out and the seat is vacant, then Newsom should absolutely put a black woman in that seat. And when a you know, reporter said, well, uh, you know, you're, you're running for that seat and you're not a black woman or a woman of color, um, she turned it around and said, oh, yes, but the, the, the you know, the, the minority communities have no greater servant of, you know, of, of their interests than I. Um, so anyway, uh, on to Brandon Cogdill, uh, whose listener says um, he's a teacher up in Modesto and he caught a mistake in the Politico story about Kamala Harris. And it wasn't just Brandon who caught this mistake. Um, and the mistake is that Kamala Harris is, quote, the first woman and person of color to serve as VP. But that's not entirely true, says Brandon. And then listener Kevin cited the same thing. Um, but Brandon says, actually, Charles Curtis, vice president under Herbert Hoover, was of American Indian descent and grew up with the Kaw Nation, people who speak the – I looked this up – people who speak the Kansaw language from which we get the name Kansas. Uh, Kevin, another listener, said uh, it was Charles Curtis. He points out the same person, uh, VP under Hoover, Kaw Nation. Um, Hoover is an underappreciated president, Kev uh, listener Kevin writes, an underappreciated president who had several firsts and still has some onlys, for example, the only president who could speak Chinese and which he became fluent during his stay in that country. Listening to our conversation about Jay Nordlinger's postcard from Yermo, California. Remember, that's where this there's this awesome uh, kind of anti-Chinese communist um, sculpture garden that has been vandalized multiple times. There's been death threats around it, you know, for the artist. Um Listener Kevin Vermeer of Minnesota, yes, we have listeners in Minnesota, uh, said several years ago, Governor Newsom came up with some outrageous abortion law. At the time, we were considering a road trip to California to see a game at each of the Major League Baseball parks in California to protest Newsom's new law. We canceled the trip, and I wrote letters to him and to each baseball owner telling them of our decision. Of course, we never heard anything back, not that I expected to. I guess my question is, he goes on, given California's outsized influence in matters like this, was our action good, valuable in any way? Any suggestions on what we could have done better? Any suggestions for sane Midwesterners to try to prevent California from driving the entire country into a ditch? Oh, and then he goes on to say, uh, P.S., appreciate the podcast. Thanks for what you and David do. I would write to David, but my California bias extends even deep, more deeply. I have no love for USC and join, seeing them join the Big Ten. Um, 
So I hope Kevin knows that you and I are both SE guys, but um, there you go. So, um, yeah, that's a diss to you that he's not giving you the Trojan love. I mean, we, we are both bleeding Cardinal and gold and he's, uh, if he's going to hate me, he's got to hate you too. Right. I, I, I take offense. Um, um, and so I'll let Kevin know that my uh, company has opened an office in Minneapolis. So we have plenty of love for Minnesota. Um, you know, Will, I don't think Kevin's going to like my answer, but I'm going to share it with a lot of grace and, and winsomeness. And I certainly a lot of respect for anyone trying to do something that would not reward bad behavior, but just on a real basic rational level, um, he kind of answered it himself when he said, I didn't expect I'd hear back. They wanted to go see the major league baseball parks and they didn't get to see them. So the only person in this story who suffered is Kevin. And, and I presume when he says we, I, I assume he's talking about his family. He says, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we. And his wife, there. yeah. So that's my problem with things like that. Just like when they pulled the, when you, this whole thing of boycott and whatnot, um, you're, you're saying I'm not going to go to the, the ballpark, but you, you, you're not doing anything to Gavin Newsom. You're not doing anything in the state of California, right? And so if you somehow organize, mobilize, crystallize 50,000 people that aren't going to go, I, then all of a sudden there's some scale to the effort. And uh, I, that may or may not be a smart thing to do, but I would at least admit 50,000 people have an impact. But one person not going isn't going to have an impact. And so I would just say, um, if you want to see the ballparks, you should come see the ballparks. Yeah, you and I have talked about this on occasion, and that is, you know, even offline, you and I have, uh, you and I share an interest in music, sometimes music that is produced by people whose politics we abhor. Um, but I don't deprive myself of the music or the art that I love um, or the places that I like. You know, I I still love San Francisco. I love to go there and see that city. I love to drink the coffee and walk the hills and see the architecture. And I don't want to deprive myself. I love to walk over the Golden Gate. I love the Bay. Um, yep. So I, I – Like Scott Weider said, he loved the bathhouses. <laughs> I mean, even with monkeypox, he wasn't going to stop. <laughs> no, and he wanted people to come from all over the world to enjoy it. Um, but, but, I mean, like the, the, the limiting principle factor, I respect that Kevin is interested in taking a stand. I just always have a hard time. Like there were people that said, hey, are you so proud of this coach? He got fired at this Christian high school, and he, he can't coach the football team anymore because he wouldn't get the vaccine. And, and I said, well, when you say am I proud of him, like, I don't think they should have been forcing him to get the vax. And if he legitimately had a religious reason not to get the vax, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But again, he lost his job and his players all lost a coach. And I kind of felt bad for them. Like, I don't think anyone else suffered from it, but they suffered. Right. Mm -hmm. And so my point would only be to Kevin. He's right on how insane California is doing. But unfortunately, sometimes things that are only done for a symbolic reason, they're not really all that productive. All right. Well, you know, we've got loads of stories to get to. And one of the things I don't want to bury too much, you know, I want people to know this, that at the bottom of the show, uh, we're going to have my interview with uh, 
tech genius uh, Joe Lonsdale, a guy who uh, was one of the founders of Palantir and then, of, of course, uh, moved his family to Texas um, and uh, is enjoying life out there, but still maintains an interest here in California and has some really fascinating things to say about homelessness. We'll get to that in just a little bit. I wanted to start the conversation today, David, about the news with Angela Davis, um, did you happen to see the story in which um, there's, she's a participant in PBS's Finding Your Roots series? I don't know, David, if you've had the chance. I saw to see the whole it. thing. I saw the whole thing. Okay, so this is Henry Louis Gates Jr. is the the host of this series, and the whole idea is that they trace the genealogy of celebrities and significant Americans. Um, my favorite was uh, Ben Affleck, who, upon discovering that he was related at some point, perhaps, to a slave owner, tried to bury the show, tried to get it killed and begged them not to produce it, as if somehow he is guilty for the sins of his father, uh, and not even his father, his probably, you know, seven times removed grandfather. But um, in this, similarly, in this episode, it was uh, Angela Davis. Uh, turns out, <laughs> a spoiler alert, She's a daughter of the Mayflower. She is a descendant of the the first folks, the first Europeans who arrived in uh, in the north, in the northeast. Um, she is, of course, a professor of Marxist and feminist studies now at UC Santa Cruz, was at UCLA for a long time. But back in the day, she was involved in armed insurrectionist groups, including the Black Panther movement. Um, she was she was the person who supplied a gun that was used in the murder of I want to say a judge back in the seventies. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a, this is a person who is an ironclad bulletproof to reality kind of Marxist. And so when Gates, Henry Louis Gates shows her the data, um, he's, he asks her, do you know what you're looking at? That is a list of the passengers on the Mayflower. And she says, no, I can't believe this. No, my ancestors did not come here on the Mayflower. Now, I don't think she's denying the reality of it. I think what she's really saying is like, she's, in disbelief, right? Um, so she continues to protest while Gates confirms the findings. Like he just says, no, 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 you really did. You are a descendant of the people in the Mayflower. And she says, that's a little bit too much to deal with right now. And then he asks, would you ever in your wildest dreams think that you may have been descended from the people who laid the foundation of this country? And she says, never, 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 never. Um, and I loved Michael Brendan Doherty's res uh, response on National Review. He said, I want you to think about this from both perspectives. Almost certainly exploitation has played its role in America, but someone who came on the Mayflower has a radical like Angela, Angela Davis as a descendant. America is huge. Talk of divorce is senseless in light of this reality. I thought that was a great response. Uh, this is very complicated for, for Angela Davis and not just her, but for all of us who have, you know, friends and family who are lefties and radicals or conservatives or Trumpers or not, um, whose descendant or rather ancestors may have done, uh, you know, execrable things or remarkable things. We are not monolithic in our in our genealogical lines. She, you know, she is not a direct descendant only of Africans, it turns out. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say because I'm debating internally if I find this all as interesting as you do, or if I don't, and it's possible <laughs> that I do. And I'm just a little fatigued from it, in which case I don't want to 
I don't want to take out my mood, you know, on listeners, let alone on you. But there is a sense in which I believe if we go back far enough, we're all going to touch Adam and Eve. And those two sinned. And, and then since then, there's a really complicated web of genealogy. And it is no news to anyone who thinks about this for five seconds that in their genealogy, there's, there's going to touch some, some bad things and some interesting things and some surprising things. And I, I think that that story, what caught me was not her reaction and it wasn't the news. I mean, to be honest, I don't, I didn't really care much about that, you know, 400 years and, and distant, distant relative, you know, with Mayflower, it's kind of, you know, all right, whatever. But it was the Twitter comment thread in response to it that was just mind-boggling. And everyone asserting, well, of course, because there was a rape and all this type of stuff. Uh. You know, I um, I don't know. Do you think, Will, that there's a possibility that, like even Ben Affleck's re- reaction, like, let's bury this, you know, it's really problematic. Is it problematic? 400, 500 years gone by removed 47 times in uh is it uh, is it really a thing what am i wrong on this am i being too cynical no no you're not but that's because you're a person who like me regards it as obvious that we're all complicated people with complicated personal pasts and family pasts etc and you and i also agree that we're not responsible for people who are dead by the time we were born, certainly, not even responsible for our you know, own parents. And, you know, frankly, we're ultimately not responsible for our children at some level. They take on that full mantle of personal responsibility as they get older. <clears throat> Pardon me. So, no, for you and I, this is uncomplicated and un- un- unsurprising. But for someone like Angela Davis or Ben Affleck, who really believe in identity politics and critical race theory, and I don't know about Ben Affleck, I can't say, but clearly Angela Davis is a true believer. This becomes complicating. This reality for her is shocking to the idea that race and class are simple constructs and can be applied rigorously, relentlessly, invariably into a binary world of black versus white, of rich versus poor, class warfare, race war. And this undermines her whole mission, really, in some respects. It's complicated. Unless she gets to go into that, as you pointed out, the the next obvious answer is, oh, no, 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 this isn't about me. It's about rape and slavery. Um, Yeah, maybe. Um, that's certainly in there. That's some pretty terrible stuff. But to deny that we are as individuals, never mind as a nation, you know, we're, we're complex and we're complicated people. Uh, we didn't just drop here without a past. Um, and it's what makes reparations so reprehensible to me. The idea that somehow it is black versus white or um, Asian American versus Latino or whomever, rich versus poor, uh, we're all in this together. Uh, we're in a lifeboat, basically, and we have the option of either turning this thing into a magnificent opportunity for all of us to love and hold each other up or to just use it as an opportunity to beat each other up. It doesn't work for a Marxist, typically. I, I speak whereof <laughs> I know guy, about this What's the name? The guy uh, who hosts hosts Henry, the show? Henry Louis Gates. See, he couldn't have been doing it as a gotcha moment. No, no. 
No, he's not. Whatever else I think about his politics, which tend very much toward liberal and even progressive, you know, he's he's trying to show, I think, honestly, what you and I believe and what we've just spoken about, the complexity of our pasts and what that means. I think in doing so, he's doing a tremendous public service, especially to the left. For those of us on the right, got it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I got uh, an email. Sorry. I got so many problems with people in my family that are still alive <laughs> that I don't even have time to think about the folks that could have been connected to me 400 years ago and nine generations ago or whatever. But are you not interested in them? I am. I'm not. Oh, how fascinating. I'm not. Yeah. No. I'm, I'm interested in I'm interested in the fact that uh, my mom and I uncovered the first marriage in our family in California it was 1768 1769 and it was a woman who might have been um of mixed race certainly indigenous spanish indigenous you know mexican plus spanish she arrives at the San Gabriel mission in the 1700s with a soldier husband they, they she gets married there to a soldier who's Spanish. And that's how the family starts. And it's just fascinating to trace these people down and say, uh, you know, um, that's how I got here through this complicated. There were Swedes in there and Germans. And I mean, it's just a really fascinating kind of story. Yeah, I mean, my, my great, great grandpa Nicholas stowed away um, and then came, uh, came to us from Denmark and then uh, ended up going through Ellis Island and, and then ended up on the West Coast. And my great grandpa Melvin worked on a train. So these people are close enough. You know, it's within the last 140 years. And uh, those stories are knowable from people who were alive that shared them. And I thought it was kind of interesting, you know, for a few minutes. But then, like, they told me once when I was a kid that my great grandmother, you know, was one eighth Creek Indian. And we were going to go through Oklahoma and meet all these people in her family and have dinner. And I was like nine years old. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't sound very fun. <laughs> and they go, no, 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 you really got to see the heritage and all the Indian ancestry. And we go through and meet all these kind of Native American adjacent relatives to my great grandmother. And they were all so wasted <laughs> the entire dinner that it was really not quite the experience my parents had in mind. Well, this is the 23 and me dilemma, isn't it? Uh, you know, be careful when you reach out and touch somebody to whom you are related. You, you may not like the answer. Um, I got an email. This uh, this is, truly is a news story, David, um, even if it's only a minor one. I got an email from uh, somebody who, a PR firm that clearly had not done its homework on its email list. They contact me multiple times uh, with increasing intensity to beg me to uh, reach out and interview this person and get her on our podcast. Um the, the letter reads, I'll just read part of it. I'm reaching out about a story that might interest you and in memorable moments from his State of the Union speech this week. President Biden spoke about the need to raise taxes on the rich instead of slashing social safety programs. An important signal of Democrats' priorities is a debt ceiling negotiations get underway, blah, blah. Um, I thought you might be interested in connecting with Gabriela Sandoval, PhD, the new executive director of the recently launched Excessive Wealth Disorder Institute, a California-based progressive think tank focused on inequality tax reform and holding the ultra-rich accountable. With experience in academic and nonprofit sectors, Gabrielle offers a fresh perspective on what she plans to achieve at the Excessive Wealth Disorder Institute in 2023 and beyond, along with an innovative solution to address excessive wealth through tax policy and reinvesting in critical public services like healthcare and education, blah, blah, etc. This is new and fresh, David. 
the idea of taxing the rich to make them pay their fair share so that we can support critical programs. Finally, someone is mad at rich people. <laughs> and willing to say it out loud and create a nonprofit in California. Can you imagine the courage it takes to say that in, uh, you're mad at super duper rich people? In this environment, you might be punished and elected to the U.S. Senate. Um, so uh, in other news of uh, how bad the rich are, Malcolm Harris, a young kid out of Palo Alto, um, has written a history of California capitalism and the world. Um, I'll just quote a bit from National Public Radio. Uh, here's how they introduced a conversation with him. And again, this is a guy from Palo Alto. He has written this new book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism in the World. NPR says, there's one narrative about the rise of Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, California, that it's a place where the entrepreneurial spirit roams free, nurtured by fine schools and open minds whose progeny go on to create things that make the world better for everyone. And then there's Malcolm Harris's version in this buzzy, sprawling new book. It's a microcosm of and a metaphor for a capitalist system that advantages the few at the expense of the many, that yeah. extracts as much as it can, as fast as it can, leaving exhausted soils, bodies, and souls in its wake. His book is called Palo Alto, History of California Capitalism in the World. And when I spoke with Harris, the NPR person says, he told me the idea for the book came from his thoughts about his childhood in Palo Alto. So um, this is a guy who describes Palo Alto as a rich ghetto that was created by people running away from the disasters created by their capitalist experience. Of course, the city is founded, uh, Malcolm points out, by the uh, railroad magnate Leland Stanford. And then he goes on to describe in the, the section of the book that I read, um, Leland Stanford's role in the rise of the railroads, which is, um, you know, off and on again. It's, it's really a kind of, um, it's a very shoddy history, the sections that I read, just very shoddy and one-dimensional. It's a, it's, it's a cartoon, really. And it refuses, as all progressives do, to, to actually understand if capitalism is bad, what's the alternative? If entrepreneurialism is evil, what's the prevailing alternative then and now? And he actually says, in response to the NPR person pointing out that some critics have noticed his refusal to say, okay, if not capitalism, what else? Here's his answer. Yes, I'm a Marxist. I understand history as a history of class conflict. But that doesn't mean that my project is the weighing of hearts, right? I'm not saying this guy's a capitalist, so he's bad. This guy's a communist, so he's good. That's just not the project of my book. It's to try to understand this history. And the best way I can understand that history is as a history of class conflict. And that's the argument I put forward. Now, when someone writes a history of the Soviet Union, they critique Stalin. Do they have to list, you know, how many people died in the Vietnam War? Of course yeah, not. That's a so he's, he calls this red baiting and says that if he is required in, in condemning capitalism, if he's required to sort of like, you know, post up under the uh, the basket for communism and acknowledge its myriad failures or the failures of the progressive state in California, that that's unfair to him, that he's just here to just denigrate capitalism because it's evil without ever offering a compared to what moment? I, um, I, I don't think this guy is super bright. <laughs> But okay. I do want to thank NPR for interviewing him, publishing it on their um, very well manicured website, distributing it to us by means of social media, and um, allowing all sorts of other non-Silicon Valley 
non-capitalistic entities to share the great message of Malcolm Harris. You get the irony? I do. We're reading um, about the evils of technological advancement for a profit motive through the technological advancements made possible by Silicon Valley. And this young man doesn't even see the irony in it. Now, the idea that moral equivocation and the whataboutism of saying, you, I, I don't have to I deal with Stalin's murders, just like the Americans don't have to deal with their bomb killing in Vietnam. Um, it's not relevant to the book project. Of course, misses a certain uh, piece of the argument. It does. That fundamentally intrinsic to the denial of human liberty, including human liberty and market transactions, which is the core of the classical laissez-faire capitalistic case, is the power that comes out of this view of history as class conflict that he advocates. So Stalin's murders are not anecdotal to communism. They are communism. And, and, and so this, this argument is so stupid on its face, but I don't even think you have to go there. Even apart from the way he uh, defended it, he doesn't answer the critical question of what he would propose as a method of social organization. What form of social ordering would he believe in, in the economic dimension, if he gets what he wants, which is to take away uh, the, uh, basically the innovations and growth in places like Silicon Valley that come from a market economy. And the only answer he alludes to, I read that whole NPR piece, is his doubling down on a uh, view of history of class conflict. So that is a way of saying, I'm willing to live without the innovation. I'm willing to live without the growth. Because obviously he doesn't believe in a state-owned <clears throat> means of production, excuse me, that we're going to get that. Yeah, and, and I guess what, what I would say to young Malcolm Harris is you don't have to argue that capitalism is perfect um, or that it has an, or that you, you don't have to, yeah, you don't have to argue that capitalism is perfect in order to say that sort of, you know, along the lines of Winston Churchill, it's the worst of all systems except for the others. Um, sure. It, in an ideal world where we were governed by saints and we ourselves were saints, uh, we might be able to create some sort of utopian commune, I suppose. Uh, it might lack innovation, but we're all saints, so we wouldn't care. Um, so leveraging human weakness and human strength as it is in a system like capitalism is far better than ending up in the gulags and to argue that the gulags aren't inevitable um, it, it belies even these, the, the evidence of our own witness in California. We watch how as progressive regulation utterly fails, progressives argue that they just weren't radical enough in coercion, in mandates. Um, so you don't have to go to Stalin in the gulags or, you know, the Ukrainian uh, Holodomor, the, the, the great famine that was inspired by Stalin when he confiscated the wealth of people in Ukraine in order to fund his own factory system and buying of foreign products. Uh, you don't have to go that far. Just look at California and how it has laid waste 
to poor people and made their lives more miserable and more dependent on government services. Speaking of Palo Alto, David, uh, you know, here's, if I were organizing this story and this whole episode rather in a way to really sell, I wouldn't have started with a philosophical conversation or my interaction with a a flight attendant or anything else, uh, letters. I would have gone right to this story. Elon Musk is back in California, sort of, and back specifically in Palo Alto. Um, he met there, uh, as Elon Musk did with Gavin Newsom uh, last week to announce uh, that he is, uh, they held a joint conference to announce that Tesla is building its global engineering headquarters in the former Hewlett-Packard headquarters in Palo Alto. Um, his uh, engineering department will take over the building in a move that Musk said he's very excited about. He famously, of course, moved his corporate headquarters to from Palo Alto to Texas, Austin, Texas, in 2021. We know that. Uh, and he has moved uh, to Texas himself and has slammed California for its over-regulation, over-litigation, over-taxation. David, what do you think about uh, Elon Musk meeting with Gavin Newsom? Uh, Gavin Newsom has is, is amplified this message, you know, like, look, California is the best place in the world to conduct business. So says Elon Musk. Well, I mean, I think the the question that doesn't get asked here is Elon Musk's uh, state of residence for filing <laughs> return. So, um, you know, obviously a company of Tesla's size and complexity is going to end up having operations all over. They never had left California altogether. And they still, what they have going on in Fremont is significantly trumped by what they're building out in Reno. And obviously we know his personal residency being in Austin. So the facts kind of speak for themselves. And there's a number of different things that could be at play here. Um, I just got done reading a 750 page book that was an absolute masterpiece by a really gifted writer, a kind of left wing guy named William Cohen used to write for Vanity Fair, and now he writes for Puck. And it was called Power Failure, and it was uh, really the entire history from A to Z of General Electric, including its really, you know, massive failure over the last uh, 20 couple years. And they had famously moved from Connecticut to Boston at the tail end there of their last CEO's reign. And it announced, you know, it was really significant uh, tax burden in Connecticut uh, with corporate tax, uh, property tax, and state income tax. And yet the irony was that they went to Boston, which Massachusetts was tax friendlier than Connecticut, but wasn't, um, uh, you know, considered a tax friendly place. And so there was kind of enough in the narrative there for everybody like, oh, yeah, you know, see, they're leaving Connecticut. It's not a friendly business place. But then there were the people on the left could say, well, they're going to Massachusetts. That's not very friendly either. But then you realize that General Electric had like 147 locations in the U.S. alone. And, and at one point, 250,000 employees, they were based in 47 of the 50 states. And so, you know, Tesla is not as much of a conglomerate as General Electric was at that point. But my point is that there are a lot of things that go in to what a company will pick. And it's one of my big criticisms of the handouts that people give Disney for hotels and things is taxes are one of them, but not the only one. Access to talent, education, culture. Uh, there, you, you know, that's a huge thing with Austin um, and, and other towns now that have become, in both red states and purple states, 
Uh, I had lunch yesterday, by the way, with Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia here in New York. Wow. And hearing the things that they have going in Virginia and the size of companies he's recruited in, he's only been governor there for a little over a year, but they're making the argument based on some deregulation he's done. They're trying to get it into more competitive uh, tax state, but they do have a Democrat legislator he has to deal with. But um, it's the talent pool to for hiring which for you know a factory making widgets might need a more blue collar talent base and you want coal miners in West Virginia but then for some of the the things that that Musk is doing it's more it's more bespoke and so uh, I don't make anything of it other than uh, I expect that Tesla is going to end up with a presence in a lot of states over the years and I think that Elon Musk will be filing a very large tax return um, with the federal government and no return at all in his state as a Texas resident. You know, and as uh, Elon announces that he's going to open up his engineering headquarters in Palo Alto, you know, the, the, tra the, the corporate traffic in the other direction continues apace. Uh, company, smaller company, but, you know, still significant. And from Fresno, Credit Bureau Connection, a California-based provider of credit-focused lead generation credit reporting and compliance solutions, moved its headquarters from Fresno to Frisco, Texas. Uh, similarly, and this is a much bigger company, of course, this is McAfee, the San Jose cybersecurity company announced uh, it'll be Frisco's newest edition. Frisco seems to be getting a lot of attention in Texas. Uh, they move, they're moving its headquarters to, um, to Frisco in 2023. Quote, our decision to choose Frisco for our regional HQ was also based on the diverse cultural destination the city has become and the many opportunities our team members will have to be immersed in the community and to give back to the many nonprofit organizations there. Kind of a wokey little uh, introduction of, um, of McAfee to, um, to Texas. Um, hey, one of the bigger stories this week was that Joe Biden is going to uh, – has nominated for Labor Secretary Julie Sue. She's uh, replacing – we talked about this a week or two ago. She would replace Marty Walsh. Um, who is uh, the Lorena Gonzalez of the Biden administration, a guy who rose through the ranks of the Teamsters Union in Massachusetts, became mayor there, and then uh, ended up, long story short, in the Biden administration, running interference for unions with the Biden administration, uh, the wind beneath his wings. Um, Julie Sue, similarly, has been a, a kind of labor-adjacent sort of California activist, and um, the... Uh, the, the problem with her is that she will simply continue to implement California policies, specifically AB5. Here's how one newspaper put it. Among the initiatives that she would be spearheading that the, the Biden administration has been pushing is the California initiative that would make it more likely for workers to be considered employees rather than independent contractors. And of course, this would give them access to minimum wage and unemployment insurance, which, of course, if you're an independent contractor working for Uber or Lyft, which is who AB5 was aimed at, or the trucker, the independent trucking industry where people make six figures, uh, that's kind of a bogus argument. Um, and legislation that provides incentives to owners of clean energy projects to pay wages similar to union wages. Ms. Sue's contributions to, these to this administration achievement has won her widespread backing from labor unions. Um, what... Almost nobody seems to have acknowledged is that Julie Sue was in charge of the California Labor and Workforce Development Agency under Gavin Newsom. And travel back with me in time, David, to those uh, podcasts we did a couple of years ago 
when one of her departments, the Employment Development Division, almost melted down. They were caught uh, handing out billions in COVID-era unemployment claims to fraudsters. At the time of her nomination for the Biden administration, that story was already out. It looked like the EDD had handed out $11 billion to fraudsters. That number is now estimated at three times that, about $33 billion to fraudsters. At the same time, this same division that she ran, she was in charge of, denied about a million Californians their rightful unemployment claim. So let me reprise. Uh, fraudsters, $333 billion, I'm sorry, three, $33 billion, legitimate California unemployment claims, 1 million people, you know, were, were put into a financial stress position because this person running this agency couldn't get her stuff straight. Now, she argued at the time, and the Biden administration backed her up on this for when her, she was being confirmed for assistant labor secretary. Biden administration jumped in in her defense, as did all of the labor activists who were excited and thrilled to see a Californian enter the Biden White House with some progressive policies. They all said, well, you know, there was fraud everywhere. Not on this scale, my friends. Not even per capita. Was there anything like this in the country? And the fact is that this agency in particular had been warned for 20 years that it was not keeping up its due diligence on how to really check the the propriety of people who are applying for unemployment and other kinds of benefits from the state. Going back 20 years, David. Um, So uh, the thing that I want to point out is that uh, we had, you and I talked about this at the time, that uh, it was then state um, auditor, Elaine Howell, who I just think is one of the great heroes of California history, a woman of just unflinching candor when it came to government failure. But unfortunately, auditors are just sort of like, you know, chirping from the the cheap seats, basically. It's an important position. They do great work, but they have no authority, whatever, to change the course of anything. It's up to the legislature. It's up to the the elected or appointed, rather, public officials like Julie Sue to actually act on these recommendations. But while Sue was in office, Howell's office, uh, her auditor's office, was concluding in a report in the spring of 2020, the Secretary of the Labor and Workforce Development directed EDD to pay certain claimants unemployment benefits without making key eligibility determinations and to temporarily stop collecting biweekly eligibility certif- certifications. What she did, translation, Sue's department decided, Sue decided, that it was more important to speed money out without checking the qualifications of the recipient, that was important just to get money in the hands, to push federal dollars through the state of California to as many people as could claim it, and then slam the door on legitimate recipients. Um, So none of this made any difference to 50 senators who confirmed her for her nomination. And the Dems are still coming to her rescue. Here's a quote from uh, Jamie Raskin. You'll know Jamie Raskin, the Democrat from Maryland, who I believe was involved in our January 6th commission. Uh, He said, I'm troubled that some of our colleagues want to cherry pick facts and deploy distorted figures to attack the underlying legitimacy of the programs themselves, programs that were a lifeline and salvation for millions of businesses and families across the country. Yes, Jamie. Yes, yes. We understand that bailing people out when the government pandemic lockdown was in full force was critical and legitimate. We get it that some people were helped by this. That doesn't mean you get to excuse a $33 billion gift to international crime gangs. Um, It's just, it's, yeah, I'm starting to lose my cool here. You can tell. So, um, well, hold on though. Were the, were the crime gangs locked down? No, no, they were operating fully. 
Yeah. <laughs> How were they able to operate? They were sitting at computers and probably, uh, you know, socially distanced. Yeah, but still, I got to think the lockdowns took a toll on their business, too. I have no problems with crime gangs getting a little PPP action. You're, you're probably right. That's probably yeah. fair. Sac- the Sacramento Bee would agree with you. Uh, they had a story. I'll pop this in the show notes. Even if which- they were still technically open, you, would just the di- you got to figure wearing masks when you're doing your criminal stuff. That slows <laughs> down your operation. <laughs> that used to be a required uniform if you were involved in crime. Um the Sacramento Bee wrote in an editorial, it's difficult to say who was most responsible for the explosion and unemployment fraud in California. No, it hasn't been unclear who's responsible for 20 years. When you have a 20-year head start on fixing this problem and you leave it to outside organizations um, who are really quite good, like LexisNexis was terrific at identifying this problem as well. Private sector observer, and they were, the argument was made at the time when LexisNexis came out with its own report to say like, look, you guys are really not doing a good job of vetting your unemployment recipients or, you know, community college uh, applicants. We've talked about that problem where people, again, organized crime groups from Russia and Eastern Europe were really hitting hard the community college application process and made millions off this deal. Um, LexisNexis was warning them, you know, well in advance of this catastrophe that they had a hole in their system, they wouldn't listen. Because again, their deal is that any check on the qualifications of a government handout is obviously racist and sexist on its face. Uh, So you can't do that. Yeah. Big big news down here in LA, David. Uh, I don't know if you saw this story. UTLA, the United Teachers of Los Angeles, second largest teachers union in the country, had an election. And the execrable uh, Cecily Meyer Cruz won in a landslide. She got 75% of those who voted. I'm still trying to find a number of how many union members voted. Um, One of the good stories in the LA Times noted that... um, about 13% of teachers no longer belong to the union. And I want to just give my my organization, California Policy Center, a shout out because we've been deeply involved in talking with teachers in LA and 13% of teachers now no longer belong to the union. Um, that's a big number among teachers. That's a, you know, people predicted we wouldn't even get 1%. We're 13 now. And it's, it's hard. It's hand-to-hand combat. But those teachers weren't allowed to vote, obviously, in an election for the union that still represents them, but they don't pay dues, so they're not allowed to vote. So there's, you know, 13% of the vote missing. Um, you guys should, you should take a bow. That's wonderful work by CPC, my friend. Thank you. Um, you'll remember some of you that Cecily Meyer Cruz is a woman who famously told LA Magazine, Los Angeles Magazine, uh, when they asked her point blank, like, look, man, your education results in this district are horrific. LA Unified School District is just among the worst districts in the country in terms of education outcomes. And she said, our babies may not be able to do their times tables, but they certainly know the words insurrection and coup. So, um, David, how much time you have? Uh, about 30 seconds. All right. Well, let's just uh, wrap it up then. We got lots more to run through, but uh, maybe we can hold this for next week. I have a lot of good stories on new and crazy bills coming through. Um, let me just uh, ask Sarah at this point to uh, play our uh, my, my interview with Joe Lonsdale. Sarah, take it from here, would you? All right. I'm super excited about uh, our next guest here. That's Joe Lonsdale. And Joe, I'm just going to give a quick summary of the myriad things out there I have read about you. Technology entrepreneur and investor, managing partner at a uh, at 8VC, a U.S.-based venture capital firm that manages, and I love the precision here, several billion dollars. 
Um, <laughs> it's about seven or so. It's about seven, but that's that's good enough. <laughs> that's anything with a B before it is a big number, or after it rather. He was an early institutional investor in uh, notable technology startups, including one of my favorite uh, California companies, Oculus, which uh, Facebook acquired. Mm. Uh, Oculus, you likely know, Joe, is kind of homegrown SoCal. You're a NorCal guy, and I do want to get to the fact that you're no longer a at least technically no longer a Californian. I'm a Texan. I'm a Texan. I left three years ago. We still go to California a lot. Half my team's still in the Bay area. You know, you still have to go to California to get certain things done in technology. Let's be honest. But you were, you were born here. Is that right? I'm from Fremont, California. I went to high school there. I went to school in Palo Alto. So I, I was in California my whole life. I was, I was sorry, sorry to have to go, but, but there are a lot of good reasons to raise our family in Texas. Yeah. And I love the fact that like any Yaley or Harvidian, whatever they call a Harvard person, uh, you refer to going to school in Palo Alto. Um, well, it seems slightly less obnoxious. Maybe it's more obnoxious. <laughs> that's that's very fair. <laughs> um, let's see. And then uh, you're also, let's see, you co-founded Palantir. Um, I did. I started that with my roommate, with Peter backing us. Wow. Uh, Peter, of course, short for? Peter Thiel. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we've heard the name. He became a lot more controversial when he supported Trump 13 years later. So suddenly, suddenly we were we were an evil company because one of my co-founders liked Trump. But it's it's a it's a great company. Yeah, and and also uh, part of the California exodus. Am I right? I, I seem to remember they moved. I want to say to Colorado. Oh, you know, maybe? I think he spends a lot of time in LA still. I wouldn't say he's totally gone from California. Unlike me, he has a giant Roth IRA, so his tax situation also is different. <laughs> and he he likes LA more than I do. So I, I like Texas. <laughs> <laughs> well, we may talk about LA, but a lot of your work on Substack, on your podcast, and I'll put all that in the show notes. Your Substack, by the way, is just awesome. Very, very thoughtful. Thank you. And that's where I encountered first a great piece that you wrote, and we'll talk a little bit about it, about, uh, I think the headline is, Gover yeah, here it is, Gavin Newsom chickens out on homeless accountability. Um, you have declared elsewhere on your Substack that accountability is the crisis of, of sort of American democracy at this point, and I really do want to get to that. But let's start with a news hook that I think you'll appreciate, because in your analysis of homelessness, you and I come to, you know, for completely, I think, the same reasons, this, the same conclusion, which is that our problem in homelessness isn't that people lack a home. It's that many of the people who we see on our streets, uh, big cities and small throughout the country, but especially here in California, the primary problem confronting these people is a problem of mental illness. Um, is this why we still have a homelessness problem in California, despite the fact that for you know going on 25 years now, Gavin Newsom has promised over and over again that he would eliminate homelessness? Um, we still have a problem. Can you can you explain why this problem persists? Well, why do we have it in California? Is interesting, right? So I think I think some on the left make a point that high housing prices don't help, but you're right. 75% of the people on the streets have a mental health problem, maybe more. At least 75% of them have a drug problem, tends to be very overlapping. And, and let's be honest, we also have unaccountable groups who get hundreds of millions, really billions of dollars if you add it up. And their incentive right now, because we don't have, they're not accountable, so their incentives for that to be more homeless. So why do we have such a big homeless problem in California? Because we're funding lots of money to groups whose incentive is for there to be a big problem. And incentives are powerful. Um, you know, and systems systems work based on their incentives. So, of course, if you pay people lots of money and tell them the more homeless people come, the more money you're going to get. You know, maybe that's not the best strategy for fixing it. Well, it seems also that you know, we, just to go back to Governor Newsom for a moment, though he has failed multiple times, he does appear to grasp, perhaps because he wants so badly to be president, that he had better deal with this problem sufficiently, or at least show um, 
action, if not outcome? Or, or at least pretend that he's going to show action. What really frustrated me, I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal after he said, you know what? I'm not going to keep giving you the next billion dollars to all these groups that are unaccountable, that are failing, that are using the same strategy they've used for 10 or 15 years. And we have multiple people dying per day. So you know what? I'm going to not just give you this money. And three months later, he gave him the money and he gave him more. And you know why? Because these groups are extremely politically powerful and he's a coward and he, he's, he'd much rather virtue signal in public and then give him the money because fighting them requires real political pain that he's not willing to go through. Yeah. So in, in his most recent iteration, that is a guy who's going to demand accountability, but then, of course, waffle on it. Um, he offered in September, he signed a bill that established what he calls care courts. These are these would closely approximate or somewhat approximate a solution you and I agree on, I think. And that is, is that whether you've got um, you, you've got to have a kind of involuntary, a kind of compulsory a court to require some people who are living and camping on the streets, you've got to require them to get mental health treatment. Yeah, yeah, we need we need it. We need a we need a compromise middle solution, right? So there's a caricature of the right, which is to throw people with mental health in prison. And I don't want to do that. I don't think I mean some people might want to, but I think that's horrible. We're not going to do that in California, hopefully nowhere. And there's a caricature of the left, which is I'm sorry, you you're mentally ill and we're giving you all this money and you've pooped on the street an eighth time. Go please go into your tent and poop on the street a ninth time and break the law. And that's probably also not acceptable for how we run our cities. We need an adult in charge. So the middle answer is yes, you need some sort of homeless mental health court system that's data-driven and that requires treatment, that forces treatment for these people. So forced treatment, absolutely necessary. Uh, I'm glad he's like finally come to that. But of course, will he actually come to that and fight for it? Or will he just say, oh, I'm sorry, the group's pushed back. We can't do it. Well, and of course, the groups have pushed back. Uh, we've got a lawsuit now uh, before the state Supreme Court in which a number of groups, ACLU, the Disability Rights California Group, a group called Western Center on Law and Poverty and the Public Interest Law Project, uh, reading here from the L.A. Times, have asked the state's high court to strike down as unconstitutional the care court program. They argue the sweeping new system will violate due process and equal protection rights under the state constitution while quote, needlessly burdening fundamental rights to privacy, autonomy, and liberty. Um, I thought that Newsom's um, spokesperson on this was right on. He said the governor, along with the majority of Californians, are beyond frustrated by the conditions on our streets. There's nothing compassionate about allowing individuals with severe, untreated mental health and substance use disorders to suffer in our alleyways, our criminal justice system, or worse, face death. So we've got this showdown over precisely the 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 the, the kind of the, the the moment, the collision point, if you will, that you describe in your essay on on Newsom's failures, and that is all we need is more housing. If you read the comments from these disability groups, it's just we just need more houses to put it's, people. It's That's so it's so clueless. It's so clueless. No, and I really do hope Newsom fights. I mean, it is it is what's best for these people is forced treatment, obviously, right? But it's the housing thing. Will is, is so clueless. Like, do, do, do you know how they give out houses right now? Have you followed this? That like HUD put this in about 10 years ago and they've scaled it up through the nonprofits. And you, you know, everyone wants a house, it turns out. There's like a million people in line for houses. Cause guess what? Like, you know, a lot of people in our society want a house. That's normal in the history of the world. And so they have to make the big equitable, you know, so they want to give out houses equitably. And so the way it is, you get points towards earning a house uh, under the system. You get more points if you're on drugs, you get more points if you're not in recovery from drugs because you need it more. You get more points if you've committed a crime, more points if it's a violent crime. If you have kids, you get more points if they're taken away from you. And what does this mean? First of all, it's horrible incentives for everyone in, in the homeless. You know, we follow people who would, who would go in and say, you know, I realize I need to get on drugs, but I want to get a home because I've been waiting for a long time. But, but second, 
like so you know of the 515 tenants that went into these permanent supportive housing units in san francisco that were tracked by the government a quarter of them died while in the program so you're literally like putting people into these things and they're dying because that's obviously not what they need they freaking need treatment I'm sorry to laugh. It's uh, it's black. It's, it, it's really gallows humor. No, it, it is gallows humor, but it is terrible. These people are killing people, and meanwhile, they're paying themselves and their friends massive amounts of money. They're running massive political machines in our cities to turn out the votes to stop moderates like Caruso for winning in L.A. And, and, and it's a disaster in California. Well, you've um, you you did a you've done a really nice analysis of that program in San Francisco. You pointed out just now that about a quarter of the people who enter their homeless program. Uh, die another quarter the permanent support of housing yeah yeah another quarter i think you said end up homeless again one quarter simply vanish another quarter may go into some kind of housing arrangement with friends or family yeah no uh, a quarter a quarter a quarter make it out and, and are stable and i don't think that's a very good yeah. results given how much we're spending per home it's just not scalable it makes no sense there's there's there actually are things we could do that work that would help everyone for the right cost and that wouldn't attract lines of people to wait for homes while doing drugs. I mean, there's, there's things that would work here and there's things that are impractical and, it, and it's baffling to me how impractical this PSH, you know, permanent supportive housing program is and that we keep trying to do. It doesn't make any sense. It's only good for the, for the special interest groups. You say that, uh, you know, it costs uh, between a half a million and a million dollars per supportive housing unit and that it takes about 25 of those units to actually bring one person in successfully off that, the streets that's the that's that's the key statistic also is that you take 25 of those units to, to remove a homeless person from the street because guess what every time you build one of these you're going to attract more people and you know, it's, it's actually comical in california because we're also sanctuary cities and i think it's great to be sanctuary city it feels good it's emotionally you're helping people from around the world but if you're saying you're not going to secure your border you're going to welcome anyone from around the world and you're going to give out free homes you think you're going to have less or more homeless people coming based on based on giving out free homes it's common sense the numbers show takes 25 of these to take even one person off. And even that is unclear because it's the more the borders open and the more you're welcoming people. I mean, it's great to welcome people, but this is not scalable. We're going to have to build homes for the whole world. I mean, it just, it just, there's no logic here. So in one of your many lives, and it does seem that though you're very young, you've got, you know, you've got your business investor side, you've got mm -hmm. your kind of journalism side, Substack, your podcast. You've also got, <clears throat> pardon me, the Cicero Institute and a piece of model legislation. Before we talk about that legislation and the success you've had with it, maybe you can tell us a little bit about Cicero. Sure. So Cicero, the Cicero Institute, it's a policy group. We have a 501c3, which does research and education. We've hired some of the great minds in our country and some of the top economists and former professors in these areas to really study them and really work with other, you know, 501c3s, other nonprofits to map this out from a contrarian perspective, you know, from a different view. And then we have a 501c4, which I'm really proud of. You know, a lot of nonprofits will are frankly pretty lazy. They're not, they don't work as hard as my business is. It's hard to get people in nonprofits to work really hard. A 501c4 is actually allowed to get laws passed. It's allowed to lobby. So we're a philanthropic 501c4, uh, which what, what that means is that we're working in different states to come up with ideas about how to put accountability in, how to put incentives, how to put innovation in to fix things that are broken. We have about 10 areas. Uh, we've worked in in about 12 states and we're one of the couple most successful groups in the country at writing up laws, working with the, you know, the house, the Senate and the, and the, and the administration in different states and getting laws passed and proving what works. And when we prove what works in this one state, you take it to other states. And so we're, we're doing this in a bunch of areas and homelessness is one of our core areas, especially coming from San Francisco, having lived there, uh, that I really want to teach people. There's actually good answers versus what we're doing right now. 
So you, you've had some success with this model already. You created some model legislation around uh, your evidence-based uh, analysis of the homeless crisis, and uh, you brought it to Missouri. Where in, you- in, in, Exactly. You know, Missouri, we had a sponsor in the legislature who had been formerly been homeless. Uh, we had a sponsor on the other side who is an expert in the area and spent a lot of time on it. And, uh, and you know, it was a big fight. The, the special interest groups in St. Louis, of course, and the people around there didn't want to have the incentives fixed, didn't want to be held accountable. Uh, they didn't want pay for performance. Pay for performance is terrifying. And, you know, all of our businesses, when we run businesses in the for-profit world, they're all pay for performance. You only make money if you perform. Uh, but these groups, they mostly get paid for being better lobbyists than other groups, right? So we want to change that. And we want to, you know, ban camping, strengthen uh, the strength laws against street camping, but fund you know, other ways to help these people. And instead of doing the ridiculously expensive housing force, which again, doesn't take people off the streets, fund mental health problems, you know, fund mental health help, you know, fund drug help and uh, fund temporary shelter and, and, and have sanctioned camping areas and, and, you know, do what works with pay for performance. So let me just go over those really quickly. Again, it's uh, you, you, there's this, a statewide camping ban now in Missouri, I gather. Uh, on, penal- on, on, on public property. You still go camp in the forest, but yeah, on public yeah. property. Sorry. <laughs> and, and, yeah. yeah, for, for, for homelessness. Not yeah. threatening Boy Scouts and hikers. No, no. Uh, penalties for municipalities that don't enforce that ban? Which is key because the problem with all these laws we've seen passed all over the place. I do a lot in healthcare, for example, and we, you know, we've said, oh, hospitals have to share data, but none of them are still sharing data because there's not enough teeth. So what we've learned when you pass laws is it can't just pass a law. You actually have to put in a framework to make sure that it happens. In in the Missouri case, can you tell us like what is the 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 penalty? Is it uh, you know withdrawing? State yeah, there's funding? certain funds. There's certain funds that they automatically start to lose if they if they're not doing it, and you actually want people to get more funds for having reduced the the camp, the street camping and, and for actually being helping people in services. And then they can get funds for that. And that's where that, whereas you lose funds, if you're keeping people camping on the street, it's, it's really, it's really important. You have to, you have to have incentives aligned for everyone in the process. You have to have incentives right for the homeless people themselves. You have to have incentives right for the NGOs. You have to have incentives right for the cities. Uh, if you don't, if you don't get these things right, then people don't do what they're supposed to do. And you've got a moratorium on state money for permanent supportive housing. You write, as we see in San Francisco and many other cities, housing first is a failure. And PSH, that's permanent supportive housing, is a deadly failure. That's where we're talking about the sorts of people who go into these programs are supposed to be so well run because they're run by the government. And in the case of San Francisco, a quarter of the people who enter, about 22%, end up dead in yep. this program. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a deadly failure. It's not scalable. It, it causes more homelessness, actually, ironically, or or at least it barely takes people off the streets and it attracts people. So it's, it's just, it's not how we should be spending our money to help people. It makes no sense. So in a, in a separate essay, uh, you really, you, you talk about the crisis of accountability that comes up again and again on this podcast. Yes. Uh, in last week's episode, I interviewed a guy named uh, Philip Howard on the problem of accountability. Oh, I love Philip. He's great. Oh, good. I, I've known him for a long time. He's doing good work. Phenomenal dude. Uh, offers a blueprint in his latest book for creating greater accountability in government that is a blueprint for constitutional lawsuit against all government unions in California and the United States. Um, One of the things I wonder, though, is that we have in California an unaccountable governor, an unaccountable legislature, um, in part because government unions through collective bargaining and other unions through the kinds of uh, financial campaign support have really locked up. We call this, of course, a supermajority in Sacramento. How, you know, what works in Missouri is likely more difficult to achieve in Sacramento. How do you characterize the the problem here? 
hundred percent. And with, and with all due respect, part of the reason I left California is that I think I could spend my whole life and all of my energy and efforts fighting those government unions in California and their tens of billions of dollars. And if it was the only thing I did, I still might not be able to beat them. Maybe I would, but what I am able to do with working in these 12 other States doing stuff here in Texas and Florida and Georgia and Tennessee and in Missouri and Arizona, we're actually getting all sorts of laws passed that put in accountability that show results that work and inspire people. And, and you know, and I think if we get enough of these things that work, eventually the moderate left will start doing it as well. Cause the moderate left, it's a lot harder for them, even when they agree with me, because they have to fight those unions, right? The government unions don't want accountability. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you one other example. It's not homelessness, but I think it's important. It's related. You know, in Texas, they did something with their technical schools, the vocational schools here. And it was really cool. The vocational schools weren't doing so well. I think these are important, right? They train hundreds of thousands of people to get good jobs in theory. And a politician will come to you and say, I spent a billion dollars on vocational school. And actually they're failing the kids. They changed the funding of the vocational schools where the schools only got funded by the government in proportion to the salaries of the kids coming out. Mm. So they only got funding based on how good of jobs these kids got their average salary three years out. And so suddenly the schools, they still, they want funding, right? Everyone wants funding. So instead of spending all their time on virtue signaling nonsense, they had to say, what skills do we teach? How do we partner with businesses? I think some of them didn't do it and those started to shrink and their funding went down. Some of them did it on average for all the, the vocational schools in Texas, for all the technical schools, salaries went up 117% over the next five years. This is before inflation. This is two years ago. So on average, the next five years, 117% higher salaries. And so that's an example of a law we're taking to a lot of other states because it turns out if you make things accountable, you know, you make it look more like the rest of our free society where you have to perform for your, for your food, uh, you actually end up having way better results. So if you don't mind, let's switch subjects here. I want to talk about the fact that, um, <clears throat> like me, like a lot of our listeners, you're a, a native Californian, and yet you uh, you felt the need to um, hit the eject button. You moved to Texas. Um, candidly, um, what, do you, what do you tell the rest of us who are either choosing to stay and fight um, besides, hey, good luck, uh, Godspeed, or you know, who simply can't move for a variety of reasons? Um, what, what is our best move next? It's, 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 it's tough. Will. it's tough. These government unions are powerful. I think you have to continue to expose them. You have to continue to show people the amount of money, the amount, then you have to continue to show the lack of accountability and where it's going towards. Uh, I think David Crane is doing good work, trying to get the moderate left to fight back against the far left. He's one of the kind of big anti-union you know, fundraisers and donors in the state. And he's coming from the moderate left and we're not aligned on everything, but I really respect what he's trying to do. He's fighting for a state. You know, I think I think friends like Steve Hilton are looking at how they get more involved. I think Mayor Falconer wasn't a great governor candidate, but I think he was a great mayor of San Diego. He has a lot of ideas for how to fix the state. I mean, there's people who are fighting who have good ideas. It's a really tough fight. You're going to need to convince multiple billionaires to courageously step up and get involved. And the unions are going to demonize them when they do. And the question is, do we have enough courageous people left willing to have that fight? Or is it better to fight in other areas and fund other states? And that's that's a choice we each have to make for ourselves. Awesome. Well, I'm not going to put you on the spot on the microphone, but I'll tell you off, off mic uh, what we're doing here at California Policy Center on the government union problem. I love um, it. What, what have you found in Texas that was, like, you know, you're not a utopian, but what, what do you think Texas, uh, people that we ought to know about Texas, I think most listeners to this podcast will understand that Texas is far less regulated, that it survived COVID better, like by many, many metrics, Texas, Florida, these other states, they're, they, they perform outperform California dramatically. Are there ways in which, uh, besides, I don't know, restaurant choices or something, you actually miss life in California or think that Texas could learn something from California? Yeah, you know, there's there's definitely positives or negatives. 
in every state. Texas has uh, Texas has obviously a lot more Fortune 500s moving here because it's a good business climate. At the same time, I think there's some issues with the grid and with energy costs here and with with how they've done certain things with that, which we got to fix. I think I think you know California has its own issues there, but but Texas definitely <laughs> definitely made some mistakes there. Texas definitely has, you know, for a red state, it's still having trouble fixing some of the education issues because a rural education special interests are very powerful even in red districts rurally the school represents such a big part of the population that things like school choice which people really want to get done here may be very difficult mm. uh so, so there's 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 issues there uh you know i i will say there's like a cultural thing i really appreciate here will where when you when you oppose people politically like there's a group in town that was that was against you know, against the camping ban for austin and there's a group of us when we moved here who saw the, the the former mayor putting all these homeless people downtown and trying to put it in our faces in his words to, in order to get funding and we got together and we won we got, got a proposition that won 57 percent you know in in in, in frankly in a, a left-leaning city of austin mm-hmm. austin voted only 25 percent for trump but we've got 57 percent of the vote to ban camping downtown and what was fascinating to me after that win is the a woman on the other side she and her husband, uh, I was roasting a dinner and they invited my wife and I about a week later. And she was aware that we'd been on the other side of it, but but it didn't mean we were evil people. And that's not how San Francisco works. In San Francisco, you would never be invited to dinner right. at the home of the people who are, who are opposed to you politically. You'd be demonized. You'd be someone who was evil. And so that was def- that's definitely a healthy part about Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that I, guess, I guess that said, um, they're, they're, I, I'm socially pretty moderate. Uh, it's definitely a shock to me to see some of the socially conservative politics in all around the rural Texas is diff- very different than I brought up. I, I respect people have different views on these things, and people are very respectful here of, of these different views. It, it is it is it is very surprising to me to be exposed that I'm obviously culturally more at home coming from California. So it's fun it's fun to see the mix. <laughs> and I just ask, what was that dinner like? So they invited you, you went. Oh, it was it was friendly. I think it came up a couple times, and, and you know, with different views on this, and then we talked about other things. There was there are people there who are from the Army Futures Command, and we were talking about military technology and sharing notes and excited. And it was just like it was just like it was just it was interesting. It was one of the many topics that was mentioned briefly, and they realized there might be strong disagreements. That therefore, be careful around it, and then just, and then just like treat each other as humans and talk about other topics. Wow, it's, it's like a healthy thing, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Well, Joe Lonsdale, it has been such a delight finally to talk to you. I've been a longtime uh, fan of your work and um, it's, you know, grateful that you haven't entirely given up on California. I guess you still make it out here. You've still got some family, I imagine. So we got a lot of cousins out there. Silicon Valley is still the best in the world for data infrastructure. The bio IT stuff around UCSF, Stanford and Berkeley. Uh, there's there's stuff going on in the Valley for AI now that's amazing. That's just way ahead, unfortunately, of anything we could do here in Texas, just given the network effect globally. So I mean, there's still some huge advantages to California. So I'd really love to see it to see it fix its problems because there's a lot of really beautiful and great things there too. I got to ask you one last question. I know I sound like I'm constantly winding up a sermon here and then launching back into another Bible verse, but uh, Elon Musk uh, announced that he's buying the Hewlett Packard building uh, yesterday, I believe this this announcement came out and he was speaking, to, uh, you and I are recording on Friday. Yep. Um, so I believe it was Thursday. He appeared with the governor and they're both celebrating this. Uh, he's going to, uh, Musk is moving or building an engineering HQ in in the old Hewlett-Packard building. I love um, it. Any insight? You know, uh, Palantir had one of its first buildings right across the street from there. And it's a, it's a great area. And as much as Elon and I probably both are more aligned, I mean, Elon's a friend, we're probably more aligned with a lot of the values of how Texas is run than how California is run. But I think all of us have to acknowledge that a lot of the top talent in the world is in the Bay Area. And a lot of the people who have come there who are the best at doing things with data and AI that 
unfortunately, those people are, are more there than anywhere else. And so it makes a lot of sense to still hire people there and still build things there. And it makes a lot of sense for us all to still fight for California to be more functional. Love it. That's my friend, Joe Lonsdale. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Will. We'll put all the uh, show information in the show notes uh, so people can find you and follow you. That's all the time we have today. You can always find this podcast on the National Review website, but it would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe. And of course, rate and review the show wherever you do subscribe. That boosts our profile. You can email us your comments and story suggestions. On behalf of my friend and co-host Dave Bonson and our guest Joe Lonsdale, we give thanks as ever to session producers Lucas Klaus, Brian Tong, Glenn Hall. Our researchers are Houston Reese, Sheridan Swanson, and Alex Kachatrian. And all of our friends at National Review, we appreciate you too. Thanks also to Metalachi, that's the LA-based mariachi and metal band for our music. La Revolución Continua en la Semana Próxima. 